not? Oh, it does. All right, so in our, our layout that you have up here on the screen, uh, we've gone through all these different uh, parts and pieces, and uh, tonight we are, we are going to zoom in for the purpose of beginning to look at individual parts from, uh, from the beginning of things that we have on this list uh, right in this area here to all the way down through. We're going to cover a lot of these things over time. Of course, our tent revival is going to uh, be a break on all that, but my goal is to cover um, the pre-tribulational rapture, why we believe it, and some, uh, some scriptural support of, of where we stand, why we stand on the rapture happening prior to the tribulation period. And, uh, and, and may I remind you, when you talk about the tribulation, or even some people will refer, some people refer to the seven-year period as the entire great tribulation. Some people refer to just the last three and a half years as great tribulation. Um, but may I say, the entire seven years is known as the time of tribulation or Jacob's trouble. It is, uh, it is a time and as a whole, and we'll look at this a little bit, but uh, there is a misuse of some scripture that leads to an idea that the church is here during the first three and a half years and the church leaves at the midway point and then the great tribulation uh, happens. The misunderstanding on that is, uh, is when they take, we'll see this, the scripture here in a little bit, they take the scripture dealing with the fact that we're not appointed unto wrath and they say, well, the time of God's wrath is the last three and a half years. Uh, may I correct one issue on that? The time of God's great wrath, which is coupled with Satan's wrath, which would produces the great tribulation time, is the last three and a half years. But the entire tribulation, the entire seven years, is known as the wrath of God. All right? And so if the entire time frame, the entire seven years is pictured in Scripture as the wrath of God on sinful, rejecting men, God-rejecting men, um, if, the, if, if the entire seven-year tribulation is God's wrath on the world, that, that's in, the rejecting world of that time frame, then according to that, then the whole thing is God's wrath, which means that if we went through the first three and a half years, then we would actually be under the wrath of God, just not under the great wrath of God. And so you have to be careful about the time frames of when you focus in on certain passages of Scripture. But we're going to look at some, uh, some qualifying uh, scriptural evidence and support for a pre-tribulational rapture, why we believe it, and, and how you can stand firm on the fact that, I, I believe very firm on the fact that we will not be here during the tribulation period. Now, that sets up a whole bunch of information when, when you understand when the church is here, when the church is gone, and, and what the church is not going through. The bride of Christ, what they are not going to be going through, um, that brings out a whole nother uh, section of things we're going to talk about, like the mark of the beast, knowing who the, um, the uh, Antichrist is. Because when you know when, when the church is to be gone, according to Scripture, then you understand whether or not we have to worry about the mark of the beast ourselves. You also understand whether or not we, we can 
determine and know who the Antichrist is going to be. Because the Bible is very clear when the Antichrist is revealed. The Bible is very clear when the mark of the beast takes place. And if the church is gone before the seven-year tribulation starts, it answers a lot of questions as to do we have to be afraid and worried. Now, we'll get there later. That's not tonight. So I, don't, I just want to give you, that's a, that's a little, little teaser for you. But uh, what they call the appetizers. They call them appetizers. No, they're just appetizers, okay? They tease you about the food about to come. But, um, but we'll get to, to that stuff later. Uh, tonight, we're going to look at the rapture period. So keep this. Uh, matter of fact, go ahead and, um, no, you can take that down. We'll, 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 we'll use our other backgrounds for the rest of this. Take your Bibles and, uh, and let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And uh, let me read verse 13 to verse number 18. Very familiar passage of Scripture. We've heard it many times. This is used very often, um, typically at the, uh, the, the graveside uh, at a funeral. And uh, this is used for the very reason um, that, uh, that verse number 18 of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the very point of it, that it makes, wherefore comfort one another with these words, uh, is why it is often used um, at the graveside time frame of a, fu- a funeral. But why? Because it is comfort for the child of God to be reminded that those who have accepted Christ as their Savior have a promise that awaits them just like it awaits us. And so looking at verse number 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, down to verse number 18, the Bible says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. By the way, again, I'll just reiterate, when he talks about sleep in Jesus, that, that, that term uh, of sleeping and all is often referred to when talking about those who have passed. Some people use that to present a doctrine of soul sleep. That, uh, that when you die, that you are still awaiting your time to, to actually see heaven, to actually see the Lord, to actually uh, be there in his presence. Because when you die, the doctrine of soul sleep is the idea that you don't actually die and immediately be with the Lord. You actually are sleeping spiritually. Your soul is sleeping and resting and waiting for the day of Christ when he returns to call his church out. And um, there's a whole bunch of scripture to, uh, to, to annihilate that, um, what I, I would call a false doctrine. I don't believe the soul is asleep uh, in that sense. I believe that God is going to reunite uh, with a body. I don't know how all that's going to work. I don't know all the details, but neither do the people that try to teach other things uh, that are not true. All right? Um, sometimes there are doctrines that are created because man has to have an explanation for everything. The simple explanation is we don't understand everything and we can't comprehend everything. How is God going to produce a new body? I don't know. What's that body going to actually be like? We really don't know. We have an idea, but again, it's all supposition because God does not fully describe exactly what it's going to be like and exactly what he's going to do. We just know, according to this scripture, what's going to happen when the Lord returns for his bride, for the church. Uh, Verse number uh, 14 goes on to say, 
Uh, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Again, that whole thing of being asleep, um, that is just another way for them to describe death. How do you des- describe death that's lost its power? How do you describe death without causing people anguish? How do you describe death w- without, without causing individuals to be fearful of it? Well, it, best way to describe it is it's as though they're asleep. It's as though they're waiting on something. Uh, now, I, again, I, I know I said it before, but I remind you, when, when the damsel uh, passed away, when the young girl passed away, and all those were ma- wailing and mourning and all, and Jesus said, uh, you know, weep not, your daughter, she just sleepeth. And they laughed at him. Jesus, now, was she dead? Yeah, she was dead. But what he's saying is, it's as though she's just sleeping. I have no trouble waking her up. Nobody else could do it, but to me, it's as though I just walk in and say, wake up, done, all right? And so even Jesus referred to death as an idea of with his power, it's just as though they sleep, okay? And so it's a picture of understanding so as to help with the idea of comfort, You say, how do you know uh, that it's dealing with comfort? Well, because he says the whole purpose of this chapter, the whole purpose of these verses, wherefore comfort one another. It's all about needing the comfort as a child of God. Verse number um, 15 says, uh, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that ye which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. By the way, that is not talking about the second coming of the Lord. That is talking about, that, that is talking about ultimately the first phase of the second coming. We don't believe in two separate comings of the Lord, two separate returns of the Lord. We believe in one return of the Lord to this earth, but we do believe that it is in two phases. Phase one, he comes, but he does not step foot on earth. He comes, he's in the clouds. We meet the Lord in the air. We'll see some of that in a minute. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Phase two, he comes and he he plants foot on the Mount of Olives and he comes to rule and reign and deal with things and set up the millennial kingdom. As one preacher put it, uh, in the first phase, he comes to get his saints. In the second phase, he comes back with his saints. And uh, by the way, we know for sure that, that we come back with him. So regardless of when you believe uh, and how you believe all this stuff falls out, the church has to be gone at some point before Jesus returns. And it really, honestly, one little, it doesn't take, this is not a, a heavy level of backing to it, but uh, it does make some common sense that it makes no sense for the church to leave just to turn right back around and come back within seconds. You know, poof, boom, all right? Uh, that's not, that, is, that makes no sense whatsoever. If that's the case, the, uh, the judgment seat of Christ is going to happen in a split second. No, the church is out, and there's a time frame. And again, time has a lot of, of, of things to go on. I don't have time to go into all of that. But, um, but there, there's a reason um, that, that time is part of fact, I think it was, um, it was Daniel, um, Daniel Collins at, uh, at the wedding uh, he did the, the part dealing with the, um, um, the, the communion that they took, and, and he, did, I mean, he did an outstanding job on explaining the relationship of a groom and a bride and then tying it into why we, we take of, of the cup and, of the, and of, of the bread and talk about the body and blood and 
And uh, he even talked about how Jesus, when he gave, he said he would not drink of that cup that he gave them to drink of. He would not drink of it until he drinks anew. And if you look at the, the, um, the background of the Jewish weddings, um, there would be a time frame. And again, this is stuff that I love hearing. I don't always understand right away, but he did an excellent job. But he said when a groom comes, he would come uh, there, he would have a cup. And he would have that new wine. He'd have that, that juice. And, and he would take a drink. And then he would hand that to the, to the young lady who would be uh, espoused to him and who would, who would be his bride if she was to accept. And if she accepts, she would take and drink of that cup. But uh, the next time that he would drink would only be when he comes back. And when he comes back to get his bride, she would come out with a new cup. She would come out with something new. And she would, when he, when he comes back for the bride, then she would offer him and he would take of that new cup and drink of that new cup. But until it came time to go get his bride and drink of that new cup, he would not drink of, uh, drink from the cup any longer. The old cup that originally was there, he would not drink of any longer. He would only drink from the new cup after he got his bride. And then Jesus said, I will not drink of this cup. I'll only drink of it when new. And that's after he gets his bride. It, by the way, marriage supper of the lamb. When that cup comes back, that cup is now the groom's. It's, it's so much fun. The cup is the groom. The, the groom uses that new cup in the wedding, the marriage supper. That is Jewish tradition. And by the way, where do you think they got it? Everything that is done in the history and background of, of things when it comes to God's people, uh, Israel, God gave them as a picture of things that are going to take place. And Jesus himself made statements that to us make no sense until you know the background. He was telling them, I'm going away, but I'm coming back to get my bride. And when I come back to get my bride, I will then drink out of the new cup at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Whew. Okay, now. <clears throat> Moving on, uh, there's a lot more detail to go to with all that, so I don't have time for it. But it goes on to say in verse number 16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words words. And, uh, and so that is one of the main passages dealing with the details of what we would call the rapture. And of course, the word rapture is not found in, in, in your King James Bible. The, the actual English word is not given. But if you look at the background of verse number 17, where it says, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. That, those two words, caught up is where, where we get our word rapture from. It literally means to be taken out in a moment, to be removed, and to be raptured out. And so that is where we get the, the term rapture. And, uh, and so don't, you know, some people get stuck on all that. And as one preacher said, you know, if you get stuck on the word rapture not being in the Bible, that's fine. Just go ahead and use the biblical words in English that we have, and that is caught up. So call it the caught up, all right, instead of call it the rapture. But um, the catching up of God's people, the church, the bride of Christ. And uh, let, me, let me pray, and then we're going to dig in. I'm going to give you the scriptural supports that I believe kind of give some pillars of foundation for understanding why this takes place prior 
to the tribulation, seven-year tribulation starting. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we look at these thoughts. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for the chance to now dig into your word. I pray that you give us clarity and understanding as we look at these things that support what I believe is fully scriptural from your word, laying out why we can be confident in the fact that the bride of Christ is removed before the judgment is brought through tribulation upon this earth. And I pray that you would help us to see these things, be confident in it, and Lord, uh, and anticipate making ourselves ready for the return of our Savior. And we thank you for it. Thank you for the truth that we have now to glean from. Uh, use it in a mighty way in our lives. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. And amen. Well, let's go ahead and jump on in, all right, and try to get all, I got four, four pillars of support I want to give you. Let me give them to you. And some of these passages we'll turn to, some of these I'll just reference. So if you're writing down, um, get ready to make smoke on paper, all right? Support number one. Support number one, go with me over to 2 Peter chapter 2. Some of these we do want to look at together just to show you that, uh, that I'm not just saying it, but we're going to actually reveal it here. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse number 4. I was reading and said, that's not, that's not the right passage. I was in 1 Peter. 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse number 4, down to verse number 9. Um, the, the first uh, area that I'm going to say is, is this, okay? All through Scripture, uh, there is a consistent revealing uh, of how God has always dealt with the righteous prior to foretold punishment on mankind being fulfilled. It's happened over and over and over and over again. We have a God that changes not. He is consistent and, and he proves himself and shows himself. He shows his tendencies. May I say, he shows his tendency of grace and mercy consistently. And so uh, for, uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 9, the uh, Bible says this, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Now get this, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness. And keep in mind, a preacher of righteousness. So evidently, at some point, somehow, some way, Noah was a preacher of that which was true and that which was right. Uh, it goes on bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly and turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that uh, after should live ungodly and delivered just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that, the, that righteous man uh, dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation or out of trouble, out of punishment. He knows how to deliver the ungodly, uh, the, the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under the day of judgment to be punished. I'm going to stop right there. Uh, for a second time, but when you see this, there are some examples that even Peter gave when understanding how God works in areas of judgment. And he, he, he pointed out 
two major time frames of judgment. And may I say, when you look at the one dealing with Lot, uh, some people say that, uh, that verse number 7 declares Lot a just man. May I say that's not necessarily a wrong analogy. The Bible does, in verse number 8, say for that righteous man, okay? And so we know that Lot was righteous. In other words, he, he belonged to the Lord, but it says he vexed his righteous soul. And how did he, how did he do that? How did, how did he overwhelm himself, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds? Um, by the way, a child of God cannot dwell amongst the lost and wicked world trying to just deal with what surrounds them knowing that they're where, where they should not be. Well, I can handle it. That's what Lot thought too. The Bible says he vexed his righteous soul. He, did, he, did he lose his place with God? No, he vexed his righteous soul. In other words, he was a, a person who did not belong where he had put himself. And instead of getting out of it, he just helped himself deal with it and deal with it and deal with it. But, but he vexed himself and vexed himself and vexed himself to the point where, uh, by the way, when the angels came, he was sitting in the gate. You don't sit in the gate unless you are part of the upper echelons of the city leadership. He so molded himself into the operations of Sodom and Gomorrah that most people around thought him to be just like them when God knew what he was. He knew what he was, but he was trying to look like everyone else. A child of God cannot do that and be happy. You find out Lot was miserable. You find out Lot, Lot lost everything. And you find out Lot wasn't what he thought he was when he went to his sons-in-law and his daughters. They laughed at him. They thought he mocked. And he went to the people of the city, and they just got mad at him and said, who do you think you are? And, uh, and so Lot, Lot found out the hard way, you can get what you want, but in the end, you may not want what you got. Uh, but, but looking at this, though, you find two scenarios. Noah and his family. This is before the great flood. Noah and his family are mentioned as being saved. Genesis, and just a reference, but Genesis 6, 13 through 22 talks about that time frame. And by the way, the Bible says that Noah preached. There was, there was opportunity where the message of truth was available. Noah preached faithfully righteousness. And Bible says that, so in that sense, God gave opportunity for truth to be known. And then before bringing judgment and destroying all things, he came to Noah and told Noah, I am going to destroy, but I am going to save you, build an ark. Here's how you build it. Here's the way you need to get things ready. Here's all the things you're going to do. You follow the command. You follow the line. And when you get in, when you follow my way, you will be saved from the judgment to come. God gave the opportunity of the message of truth to be available to everyone. 
God spared Noah and his family who were found to be righteous and just in the eyes of God. And, and, and therefore, God spared Noah and his family putting them into the ark. By the way, they were in, they were sealed, and when it rained, when the judgment came, they were lifted up above the judgment. An interesting picture that, re- that it also gets repeated when it comes to Lot. You say, hold on a second, but, but where was the message of truth? Lot had it. God had someone to be a messenger and Lot failed. Matter of fact, even Abraham thought that surely, surely there would be 50. And he goes down, he goes down. Then finally he comes, surely there are 10. Because he knew Lot, he knew how many children he had, and he knew how many in-laws he would have through those that were married. And he said just the family alone would be enough if Lot did his job. Just the family alone would be enough for ten righteous to be found. And yet when, when the angels come, they find that Lot hadn't even done his job of faithful witness within his own family. And it was Lot's failure that led to no opportunity for judgment to be delayed. But in that time frame, God still sent the angels and they grabbed Lot. You look at Genesis 18, uh, 17 through 21, it talks about uh, where God talks to Abraham and tells him, I, 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 it, can I do right by not revealing to Abraham that which I'm, I intend to do? And so that's where the discussion with Abraham comes in. So God warns Abraham that he is going to do. He predicts, he tells, he foretells what's going to happen. Abraham then reasons with God. In the end, it comes down to 10 Unfortunately, not even 10 to be found. But even when they got, when the angels got to Sodom, uh, they met with Lot. They even warned Lot, here's what's going to happen. And they tell Lot, you gather your family, you leave the city, y'all do not look back, and you get away lest ye be destroyed. You get out of here because judgment's coming and you need to be gone. You be out. By the way, he said, go up to the mountains. Interesting picture where God prescribes judgment, but those who are found just in the eyes of God, righteous in the eyes of God, whether or not not he was doing everything right or not, by the way, his righteousness was not found in his works because his works stunk. His righteousness was found before God apart from works. Unfortunately, his works did not back up who he was. But even with that, God said, you're getting out of here, and I'm, I'm going to take care of you. I'm sparing you from the judgment to come. Now go up to the mountains. Why? Once again, a picture. That truth was available, though it was failed to be shared by the one who had it. And warning was given that judgment was going to come. And those who are found righteous were told to get out and were removed from the city and told to go up. Once again, another picture of what it's like with the rapture prior to judgment. So you have the support of Scripture being consistent in revealing how God always deals with the righteous prior to a foretold judgment or punishment on mankind being fulfilled. Then also support number two, Christ himself spoke of his return for his church. Uh, In in John uh, 14, 
uh, verse 1 through 3, it says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. Uh, Notice in, in, in that scripture that there is no reference or even an alluding to the idea that Jesus is referring to the time when he steps foot on earth. He specifically speaks of this when he said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. But what coming again is this one? Is it the time when he returns, puts his foot on the Mount of Olives, and he rules and reigns? He comes back with his people? No, he's talking about when he's coming to get his people. So there is a coming to get first, then there's a coming back with afterwards. So this is the coming to get scenario, and what is he saying? I I, I will come again and receive you unto myself. I remind you, back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Jesus himself speaking very clearly of the time when he comes to remove his church, his bride, out of this world. And we must be out before we come back with him. That's just common sense right there, duh. Christ also teaches about the readiness for that day when we are set to escape that coming judgment and stand before Christ. Where is that found? Well, Luke chapter 21, verse 34 through 36. Now, Luke 21 has, you read a whole bunch prior And Jesus is foretelling and talking about many things that are to come, many things that are going to be faced. And and he comes down towards the, the end part, latter part of this chapter in Luke 21. And here's what he says. And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting, desiring, okay, and drunkenness and cares of this life. Be careful, what, what, lest you lose your salvation? Uh Uh-uh. And so that day come upon you unawares. In other words, you're not ready for when I return to get my bride. He's not talking about not ready when it comes to salvation. He's talking to those who believe in him, and he's saying you're to be watching, you're to be ready, you're to be steadfast. Be careful lest... All the cares of this world and the cares of this life and trying to live like everybody else get you so distracted that you're not even focused on the fact that I said I am coming back. And I'm coming to receive you unto myself. And he's, he's telling them to, to live ready for my return. At the cares of this world and the desires of this world, and trying to fit in like everybody else, and trying to live like Lot in Sodom, is going to make you unprepared for when Christ comes back. But what what is all that coming back for? Watch, it goes on, verse number 35. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. The capturing away, the 
catching away of God's people is going to be a massive mess. Think of the millions of people gone. And one preacher put it this way, and I thought, I thought it was pretty good. He said, uh, let's consider what a Christian is supposed to be. A child of God, a Christian in that, by that name, is to be one who is your hardest working individual in your company. There's, they're the ones that are working the jobs and unfortunately due to Caesar putting down what Caesar wants, paying the taxes. They're the ones that are dependable. They're the ones that keep things rolling. Uh, they're the ones that pay their bills on time. Right? Every child of God has a right testimony concerning paying their bills, right? I know, that's a worm. That, that, that's a bucket of worms. We've got to be careful with that one. But here's the thing. Now consider, especially in America, Let's say whether they are those who are living faithful or those living like Lot. Let's say that there, there are millions, hundreds of millions removed from the population of America. And they are your workforce. And they're your bill payers. They finance the government through their faithfulness. And all that in one night is removed. And what do you have left? The leeches. Sucking the blood out of the country. How is it that maybe America disappears overnight? If you have a country with nobody actually doing the work and nobody actually paying the bills and nobody actually providing the funds and the, and the finances and you have a whole bunch of people trying to take and nobody giving because God's people are gone and all you have is selfish individuals left behind what kind of country you got you've got a whole bunch of politicians that very possibly not all of them but many of them probably don't know Christ as their personal savior so you have a whole bunch of wicked politicians and a whole bunch of people who have voted in based on the pocketbook instead of principles and they're all going to be here together killing each other America is going to look like an easy prey for many countries who, by the way, many of them, pretty much everybody in their country, most of the leaderships in communist countries, very few of them know God as their Savior, know, know Christ as their Savior and God's their Heavenly Father. Why do you say that? Because the first thing they get rid of is the Bible. They don't want it. They've rejected it long ago. And so their leadership stays intact. And many of their people are there. And so they keep on moving forward. America becomes weak. Just an interesting thought. But you have all these people, and the Bible says that it is as a snare. It's a snare. It shall come upon all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Well, this is going to be a rough time. And verse number 36 says, Watch ye therefore, Luke 21, 36, Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape. Escape what? Escape all these things which shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Interesting. To escape all these things which shall come to pass, judgment, and when I escape all these things that shall come to pass, 
I escaped them to enter into standing before the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? The Son, capital S-O-N, of man is Christ. Judgment seat of Christ. Rapture. Removed from, escaping from that which is to come to stand before Christ himself. Interesting how Jesus himself taught on that. A very good backing to this. Uh, very quickly, almost there. Support, uh, scriptural support number three. Scriptural support number three is this. We are promised in God's word not to be appointed to the time of God's wrath. Now, I mentioned a little bit about this already, but I'm going to give you uh, some of this together. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. As you're heading to Ephesians chapter 2, I am going to read also 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8 through 11. Uh, as you're getting to Ephesians chapter 2, listen to this. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 11 says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it, it, let me read on, verse 10 and 11. For, uh, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Again, that's going back, whether we are awake or we sleep in Christ. Whether we are alive or dead, we, we will all gather together with him to live with him. That goes back to the, the passage of scripture that, uh, that, that though we, those which sleep in Christ, uh, we will not hinder them, all right? They, they, are, they go first, we follow, we meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. It's backing up that scripture. Verse number 11 says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together, here's the comfort again, and edify one another, even as also ye do. Interesting that you have 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and then turn right on 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you have Paul repeating himself again and again. Why? He's driving home the point that whether you die in this life and, and, you, and you are to be, to be uh, absent from the body, present with the Lord, whether you are in that death type scenario and, and, uh, and you're ready, waiting for the rapture and, and, and redoing of the body, a, a glorified body, or you are alive when, when the rapture happens and you are taken out this mortal body left behind, which is again where I wonder, I do wonder if at the rapture, um, is it more than just Everybody's gone. I cannot give you dogmatic um, um, setting on this, and so I won't be dogmatic, but if the Bible says that this flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, then this flesh and blood, which by the way, sin is condemned in this flesh, this flesh must die. And if I don't die, but I'm here when Christ returns, I'm going out, but that which has no part and that which cannot enter, the corruptible must put on incorruption. This corruptible cannot enter there. And, and this mortal cannot enter there. So this body has to be left behind. That's a natural conclusion. And this blood... Tainted blood that, by the way, is passed to you. The bloodline is passed from the Father. And by one man, sin entered into the world and the death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for they all have sin. The bloodline of man comes from Adam. And this 
Flesh and blood cannot enter, cannot inherit. So therefore, could it be, could it be that at the rapture, these fleshly clothes and this body with its blood are all left behind? And God creates a new glorified body that that I inhabit in that moment. But this earthly, fleshly one and the blood that is tainted by sin is left behind. Could you imagine not just being millions of people vanished, but by the world's eyes, millions of dead bodies that are putrefying around the world and they can't get rid of them fast enough? Can you imagine the chaos that that would cause? Again, I can't give you dead set dogmatic scripture on it, but when you read everything and you put all the pieces together, the puzzle sure does look like just like the body is put into the ground when we die or those that do cremation, regardless, the body must be dealt with. It stays behind the fleshly body, earthly body. When the rapture happens, something can't go. Talk about a nightmare. It'd be the, it'd be the worst thing. Uh, Hollywood can't come up with one that strong. But as we, as we look at this, the Bible says we're not appointed to wrath. I got to get back. Not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Now, we're not talking about salvation and forgiveness of sins. It's talking about the, the saving from something to come. The removal from facing something to come. And how do we, what, what, what do we say by? By our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, who, who is it that comes back to receive us unto himself? I am saved in this time by placing my faith and trust in him. I'm saved for eternity. But in that moment, I will obtain the ability to not be appointed to not just the wrath of separation from God for eternity, but we're talking about even the wrath of facing God's judgment on this earth. I, have, I am not appointed to the wrath, the time of God's wrath. I am appointed to be in his presence. So therefore, by our Lord Jesus Christ, I am going to be removed and saved from that which is to come. So just as he saved my soul for eternity, he also is the one that I will be meeting in the clouds and be removed and saved from that which is to come, God's wrath. Uh, Ephesians 2, y'all there? Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. Let me very quickly read this. We're almost done. I'm I'm trying to hurry through this, all right? I'm giving you a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, You could actually spend many, many times going through all of this in greater detail. We're just not going to. I'm trying to give us a better understanding in a short time, but... Ephesians 2, 1 through 7 says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. He's talking about prior to salvation. You were, by nature, children appointed to wrath. 
the wrath of God for eternity, but appointed to the wrath of God in judgment prior to the judgment of eternity. We were children appointed to wrath, but he goes on, verse number four, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Now there's many things you can bring out of that because he shows the riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus every single day. He does it over and over and over. His mercies and his grace is new every single morning. We know that. But, but this specifically pointing to a very particular time frame would, would lay out and I understanding, I'll, I'll just put it this way, what is the, the well, well, a couple of questions, here we go. What is the defining difference between the people Paul was addressing, uh, the, the ones he's talking to here in Ephesians chapter two, and the children of wrath, which he references? What's the defining point of difference? Redemption through Christ. Ye were of, were of them, you were like them. We had our conversation in the same things they had, but that was the old us. Something changed, and that was Jesus. Something made us new, and that was Christ, the blood of Christ. You have been bought. You're, you're, you're not the same, all right? So this is what you were. By nature, you were appointed to wrath. By nature, you were the children of wrath. But now, as a child of God, we're no longer appointed to it. Here's another question. What is his kindness towards us through Jesus Christ? May I say, ultimately, as Paul is pointing again, as he's done many times already, I believe he's pointing to a very clear understanding that we're not of the children of wrath, Appointed to wrath, God's wrath of seven-year tribulation. We're not appointed to that wrath, but we are appointed to something much greater. We are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And it is the kindness of God, his grace toward us through Jesus Christ. What would be that kindness? The removal of his people before God's wrath starts. He removes by sending his son to go get his bride. And we meet the Lord in the air. We stand before the son of man at the judgment seat of Christ and the wrath of God begins to fall on this wicked world. Uh, what other way could you describe besides, I understand, salvation and forgiveness, that we might live in his presence for eternity. I get that, understand that. But in more specific understanding, when he's talking about children of wrath and, and dealing with the reference of that understanding of wrath being the time of wrath that God is going to throw on this earth, we're not of the children of wrath. We're not appointed to that wrath any longer, but we have been uh, given the grace of God, which is going to, through and in Christ Jesus, we're going to be removed out of here. It's another area of scriptural support. But then here's the last one. Here's the last one, book of Revelation. Um, go with me to Revelation chapter 4 and uh, verse 1 and 2. Here's the last of it. We're finished. All right? So the scriptural support, number four, and there's, there's others we could do. Again, not enough time, and I believe these give enough backing to understand why we believe the rapture happens before the tribulation. 
But these, this right here is pretty neat. This is, this is interesting to see. Again, pictures that God gives. Uh, and, and we could go to the picture of Elijah being, being raptured out. Uh, Enoch was not. He walked with God, was not. He was removed. I mean, God has removed people uh, in times past, okay? And so we could go through all of that. Not going to go through all of it tonight. But uh, there is also evidence found here in the book of Revelation. And uh, one area you find pictured through John's personal experience. Uh, chapter 4, all right? Chapter 4 of, uh, of Revelation uh, here in verse 1 and 2. It says, therefore, my beloved... Oh, no, I'm in Philippians. Hold on. Somebody put me back in the wrong book. All right, here it is. After this... I looked and beheld, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the, vo and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. After what? After you come up. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Who is it? He's standing before God. All right? So John himself reveals that I've, I, don't, I don't believe God did anything by mistake. I believe he's very, he, we know he's very purposeful in all that he does. And God's not trying to give some great mysteries. It's actually pretty obvious when you tie it all together. John hears a voice. There's a door in heaven open. John hears a voice. Sounds like a trumpet and says, come up hither, come to me. And when he comes up, he sees God sitting on the throne. And so with that, let me read 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 through 52. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There you go. Or a reference we had a little while ago. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We're not all going to die, but we are all that are in Christ going to be changed. There is a glorified body coming to every single one, whether through death or through the rapture in the moment while living. It goes on um, in verse number 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. It's not the only place it talks about the trump, but I find it interesting that, uh, that John describes the voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking to me. There's correlation between what John is being brought through and I believe a picture of what God's going to do. John belonged to the Lord and he said, you come on up and when you come up, I'm going to show you what's to happen hereafter. Once you're with me, now I'm going to show you what's going to take place when you're out of there. And so a picture, I believe in the book of Revelation, that the church is going to be caught out just as John was called up. The church is going to be called up. And hereafter, there will be those things which are prescribed to happen back on earth. And then not only that, but um, here, here's another just small area. And we're done right here. But in correlation to that as well, that's chapter 4. From chapter 1 to chapter 
3. The church is mentioned over and over and over again. Ecclesia, the actual body of Christ, the church, God's people, the bride, is mentioned in chapter 1 all the way through chapter 3. But after Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 22, you never again see the church. You never again see the assembly of God's people. Now, you do hear about saints. The saints, the saints, the saints. You hear about Israel. You hear about saints. These are tribulation saints. We're going to deal with that later. People can be saved during the tribulation. And it will still be by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it will still be by faith in Jesus Christ. You say, how is that going to happen? Uh, you know, how are they going to know about it? The church is gone. Uh, well, we do leave everything behind, you know. All the preaching, all the literature, all the Bibles, all the truth is left behind. And all the, the preaching on truth is left behind. But beyond that, there's 144,000 witnesses. Who do you think they're going to be witnessing about? And then there's two witnesses that will come and proclaim. Who do you think they're going to witness about? The Bible says that there's actually an angel from heaven that goes to and fro throughout the earth preaching and declaring and witnessing. There is going to be opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for those who are left to hear truth. Some will respond and some will still refuse. I believe there are some that have already made their choice today that are going to go through and their choice is over. They've made their choice to reject Christ and that's it. I will hold to the fact that I do believe it's very possible, I'm not going to be super dogmatic on it, but it's very possible that there are some that maybe have not in their heart rejected Christ, but they have in their heart delayed trusting, thinking they have time. You say, well, no, the judgment, the judgment on them is once the tribulation comes, they cannot be saved. Where does it say that in the Bible? I cannot be dogmatic that it says that those who, who are not raptured, all of them will have a chance. You cannot be dogmatic if you believe that they're, they're over, that's their chance. They had, if they heard the truth, it's over, they can't have a chance again. You can't be dogmatic on that either. The Bible does not declare either way. What it does say is there will be people who will be uh, turning to Christ and truth. And the Bible talks about that there will be a gathering from all four corners of the, of the world. There will be millions of people. And they, by the way, at some point later on, before the throne, they will be ones, a great multitude. Who are these? These are those who have come out of great tribulation. They have been gathered. Hmm. Uh, that, that's for another time. Can't do all that right now. But I believe there are some that today have made their choice. They've rejected Christ and no, they will not have a chance. They won't care. They won't want it. They are, they are reserved to their own doom because they've chosen that already. I believe there might very possibly be some that will have heard, have thought maybe they figured it out, and then they wake up one day, so many people are gone, everything's happened. They might be sitting in church while the preaching's going on, and poof, a whole bunch of people are gone, and a few, maybe even the preachers, are left behind. And reality sets in. What just happened? You say, but what, what's the punishment? <laughs> Simple. They don't get out from facing the tribulation. 
Read about the tribulation period from the first three and a half all the way through the last three and a half. Not a single bit of it's going to be enjoyable. Not a single bit of it is going to be a, a cakewalk. Every bit of it is going to be miserable, and people are going to cry and wish they could die. And those who decide, I trust Christ, will face persecution like no one in this world has ever known. That's a pretty steep punishment for waiting. I, I got to finish last thing. But there is no reference. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse number 22 is the last reference of the church. And uh, there's nothing else besides that. Uh, the absence in combination with the picture presented in, in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Chapter 3, verse 22, last place the church is mentioned. Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, John says that I heard a voice like a trumpet saying, come up. It's amazing how the church is seen and heard. And then there's a picture of a rapture in what John was told to do. And hereafter, I'll show you that which is to come. The only other time that you see the church, uh, God's people, the bride of Christ mentioned, is at the very end of the book of Revelation. In the last chapter, chapter 22, when uh, there is actually final salutation and a challenge. Behold, I come Quickly, the church is mentioned again, but that's because it's the ending of the writing and, and the challenge is now, here's all that you've heard. Okay, church, get ready. Live ready for the return of our Savior, the bridegroom, because it can happen any moment. Church, are we living ready? Are we anticipating not talking about salvation. If you're a child of God, that's settled. What about living ready in reaching others? What about living ready in looking for his appearing? What about living ready knowing that gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, and stubble is going to reveal what kind of child of God I was? Are we living ready to stand before the Son of Man? Rescued from the tribulation, yes, <laughs> but we still have some answering to do. Are we living ready? It could happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. It could happen in a moment he could split the eastern sky. I understand they kind of mix some things together with that, but he's coming back. And he's taking his bride out. It is the next major prophetic event on the calendar there's nothing in the way of it, and it could be just like that before we even leave tonight. Are we ready? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for all of it.